Chicago's new paid leave policy is set to be delayed. And I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, about her recent conversation with co-CEOs of Advocate Health. Skogsberg specifically said on stage that day that he views headquarters as where your laptop and your phone is and that, you know, there, there shouldn't be so much focus on exactly where um, that is, especially, I think, sort of in this post-COVID era where, you know, the office and the headquarters is a little more fluid than it used to be. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, December 11th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial. Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, here to talk about advocate health. That is a topic we have talked about many times, but you recently talked with co-CEOs, Jim Skogsberg and Eugene Woods, who said that they will end its first year post-merger in the black. Tell me about what you learned from that conversation. Sure. So I was talking with Skogsberg and Woods at uh, Crane's recent annual hospital CEO event. Um, happens every December. And we switch up the programming every year, but thought this year would be a great time to do a sit down with the co-CEOs of Advocate Health, which, as we know, is the product of the merger between what was known as Advocate Aurora Health and Atrium Health over on the East Coast. They merged last December. So this conversation we had with them was right near that one year anniversary of that deal. And so, you know, we wanted to find out, well, how has a merger been going? Have you guys met the objectives and the goals you set out when you announced this thing? And they were telling us that so far they have. And, you know, you mentioned that They will end this year in the black, which is certainly an improvement from last year. And they say that, you know, they've been able to cut costs through the merger and that the size has given them sort of this financial advantage. And now they will end the year with an operating margin around 2%, a significant increase from last year when they ended the year with a negative operating margin at about negative 0.8%. You know, Advocate has recovered largely from what was a pretty terrible 2022. Uh, Many other health systems were facing similar challenges around an industry-wide labor shortage and inflationary pressures. Some of those things have started to ease in 2023, um, which in part helped Advocate. But of course, I think their size and some of the the synergies, so to speak, they've they've realized as part of that deal have, have helped put them in a better place going forward. And so at the time of the merger, you, you, of course, have been reporting throughout throughout the whole thing, but they talked at the time a little bit about how this merger would help them meet some goals, uh, lower costs, medical innovation for patients and kind of bringing them online quicker and addressing health inequities. Yeah, well, first of all, um, uh, just got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, let's talk about when we, first, yeah. when, when we first got together. And the truth of the matter is I approached Gene and said, hey, here's what's going on. Here's my time frame. And 
if, if you have some interest, we'd love to talk and so on. And he said, absolutely. And you know, the rest is kind of history. Um, but I did, I did alert him. I said, listen, I got to tell you, the first question our board is going to have when I come back and say I had a great conversation with Gene Woods at Adrian Health is they're going to say, where are they on diversity, equity, and inclusion? And where are they on health disparities? Because if that is not consistent across the organizations, they're not the right partner. So I was kind of warning him. And his response was, good, because that's the first question our board's going to ask you. Yeah. In, in your conversation with the co-CEOs, did they touch on how those particular goals that they had articulated, how those are going? Sure. So on the health equity part, you know, they say that they are continuing to invest in things like value-based care, um, making sure that facilities in areas with poor outcomes are, you know, getting more resources so that they can better deliver to those patients. Uh, you know, something else they talked about was the expansion of wraparound services. So ensuring that, you know, once uh, maybe a patient is leaving a facility for care, they are connected with, you know, the other key pillars of, of health, like housing and food, um, and, and making sure people aren't, you know, suffering from, from poverty, which as we know, can have a lot of impact on 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 health outcomes. There's, there's a, something that's called, some of you may know, Institutional Review Board. That's when you're doing clinical trials, really it's, it's the approval body in, in order to have trials uh, be able to be adjudicated throughout the system. And we made the decision probably a month four that we're gonna have one IRB for the whole system. It might sound arcane, but it actually what it'll allow us to do is with one signature, you have the latest clinical trial from ecology, for example, in the most rural parts of the communities we serve, it could be from uh, uh, Southside Chicago to, to Macon, Georgia. They also talked about some of the progress they've been making on medical innovations. So, you know, a lot of this uh, stems around uh, their use of new technologies, particularly artificial intelligence and how they're using different softwares and platforms that can help actually support physicians in their work. Um, you know, I've personally been doing a ton of reporting lately on the physician burnout crisis that's, that's leaving, that's leading some doctors to leave the industry for good. We know this has also been an issue for nurses and many other types of healthcare workers. And Advocate says that they have seen success with using AI as sort of a supportive tool um, to do some of the, you know, paperwork and the tedious tasks that physicians, you know, didn't get into medicine to do, right? Of course, they want to spend their time talking to patients um, and doing medicine, not doing the back office stuff. Um, so Advocate says there, there's certainly been some progress made there. And rewinding a bit, Originally, Illinois regulators had not been in favor of this merger at all. What shifted the tide? And, and I guess what I'm aiming at really is, is how does the merger look different in reality now than it was maybe first imagined? So, you know, I think a lot of that is still yet to come. You know, when we saw Illinois regulators um, originally vote against this merger, they were saying at the time that they felt they just didn't have enough information to make an informed decision. Um, I did ask on stage about this specific issue. I think because he was educating me to let the process go through it, I think they were just doing their job. They, they had questions and, uh, and they, they asked us additional questions. We put together some additional information, and, and, and I think that was the information. I think at one meeting they lacked informed, so they had to come back again. Yeah. But the inquiry is appropriate. The inquiry is absolutely appropriate.
whether the Illinois regulators specifically uh, mentioned this issue, I do think there's always concern with consolidation in healthcare and whether or not it really has a positive impact on patients. You know, there's plenty of research out there that suggests that mergers um, don't improve quality of care, but do in some cases raise prices of care as these health systems get larger um, and perhaps have more leverage over their insurance payers, um, other health providers in the area, and then, of course, patients. The co-CEOs rejected that notion when I brought it up on stage. They said, you know, this is not about us bolstering profits. This is about expanding access to care and improving quality of care and being more efficient. We think there's a lot of advantages to scale, one of which is that we become a more attractive partner. Okay, so... Uh, we like the fact that, that uh, our payer partners uh, might look to us for even a stronger relationship and, and then we can work together to, you know, improve co- or improve outcomes and lower costs, et cetera, et cetera. So we'd like to think that it makes us more attractive uh, and that our relationships can get stronger and, you know, a little more uh, uh, connected than maybe they have in the past. And that's what we're pursuing. Time will tell uh, what what, what this merger really means for Illinois, Wisconsin, and of course, East Coast patients. Um, But for now, the the CEOs are are sort of rejecting the notion that this merger would be bad for patients in any way. And have any issues come up? There was, was, I remember some concern that we talked about early on in this merger about what it would mean that the headquarters was now going to be on the East Coast, that it was now going to be in North Carolina. Um, any issues that, that you were that you became aware of through the conversation about maybe how that might be impacting the Midwest or is it has or has it for the most part been business as usual? You know, I've asked this question to advocate many times now. And every time, including recently at our event, um, the CEOs, you know, rejected the suggestion that the headquarters being in Charlotte, North Carolina would affect care or jobs and other operations at the Midwest operations in Illinois and Wisconsin. Skogsberg specifically said on stage that day that he views headquarters as where your laptop and your phone is and that, you know, there, there shouldn't be so much focus on exactly where um, that is, especially I think sort of in this post-COVID era where, you know, the office and the headquarters is a little more fluid than it used to be. Um, you know, even still, I think it's, it's totally valid for people to have concerns that any um, profits made in the Illinois or Wisconsin market will be funneled back to headquarters and maybe not reinvested into the um, facilities in the Midwest. Uh, You know, we don't have any evidence as of now to say that that's the case, but I think that's where that concern is coming from, that, you know, any good things that happen here, uh, people elsewhere will see the benefits, essentially. Scogsberg makes a good point, though, right, about maybe the reimagining of what a headquarters even means now. I think that's probably a uh, a worthy thought, a, a worthy of consideration anyway, for sure. Totally. And I think, you know, to his point, you know, to be fair to him, they, you know, they have installed uh, leaders in the Midwest. You know, there is like a chief Midwest operations, I'm butchering the exact title, but you get the idea. Um, and then there's leaders, there's presidents for each state. So someone that oversees the Wisconsin hospitals for advocate, as well as someone in Illinois, I just profiled him, his name is Dean Nichols. And, you know, he's responsible for the 11 advocate hospitals here. And it is his chief responsibility to make sure that 
the facilities in the state, the workers and the patients are, are getting what they deserve and thriving. And when I talked to him a couple months ago, you know, he told me that that is his priority and that he doesn't have any concerns about the Charlotte headquarters being so far away. He feels that, you know, he'll be able to advocate for and receive whatever he needs for this market. And then talk to me about the long-term leadership plan. We don't often see co-CEOs steering a ship and a big company, especially one that size. So uh, what what does that look like down the road for them? Yes. As you said, they've been serving as co-CEOs since the merger closed last year. So it's been about a year of this. Um, You know, they say that they are a good team, uh, that there haven't been, you know, major issues or rifts or debates, uh, that they are are, are relatively like-minded and want to steer this giant ship now um, in the same direction. Uh, With that being said, this won't last forever. Skogsberg does intend to retire from his leadership role in May. He'll be 66 years old and, you know, he's been leading advocate in his various forms since the early 2000s. So I think he's ready to, to sort of move on to the next chapter. Even still, he says that he will still be in the advocate orbit, so to speak. Uh, He said he'll be serving in sort of a uh, leadership development capacity. It sounds like training the next class of healthcare executives at the organization. And he said he also plans to stay involved with advocates merger and acquisition activity, which was, I think, one of the big takeaways from the conversation. So at the point when Skogsberg retires, Woods will take over as the sole CEO. And, uh, you know, we expect to see him in, in, in that job for a while. You actually walked right into the next thing I was going to ask you about, and that is kind of that future look and, and what their merger and acquisition strategy will look like for them down the road. So I was actually, you know, kind of surprised to hear them say that they are staying open and that they've been open to conversations about merger and acquisition opportunities. You know, they just completed this massive merger across six states um, just last year, right? And I feel, you know, certainly I'm not a healthcare executive, of course, but I feel like that might right. take time to Let digest and sort of, you know, get your bearings and, right, you know, figure out where everyone is and what they're doing and, and how we're going to make this thing work before moving on to the next. But uh, Skogsberg did say that, you know, the healthcare industry is, is, is going in such a way where there will be just more and more pressure for organizations to consolidate. I think what he was referring to is, you know, the, just the, the higher cost of operating healthcare facilities, um, the higher cost of labor, um, you know, and everything associated with it. I'll be interested to see if any of, you know, this future consolidation takes place in Illinois. Like, could this look like advocate consolidating with a smaller health system in Chicago or in the suburbs? Um, you know, that might spark some regulatory concerns because of the, the similar geographic area, but that'll be something I'll be watching for. What else will you be looking for in the year ahead from this company? Yeah, well, I think that the CEO transition in Skogsberg retiring will be sort of a key and pivotal moment for this health system. Um, you know, we won't have that influence from Skogsberg, who is, you know, sort of through and through a, a Chicago land guy, it seems. Um, You know, he lives in the suburbs. He's been at this particular health system for 20 years or so. So I'll be curious to see how Woods continues to to steer this ship and certainly how often he's visiting Illinois facilities and, you know, even those in Wisconsin, of course, what his individual impact will look like. 
you know, specific things I'll be looking at are the financial performance of this thing. How is it performing? Um, how is it competing with other providers in the area? Quality metrics are things that will, of course, continue to monitor uh, when it comes to advocate. You know, we want to know how are these hospitals performing? Are they having good outcomes or poor outcomes? And maybe what's contributing to that? Jobs at advocate will continue to be on 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 my list of priorities to watch for. Right now, Advocate is like the biggest employer in the area. Will that continue? And what does investment look like? Perhaps they'll get bigger. We don't know, but I'll be watching. And we will keep turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much, Catherine. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a state health plan declares racism a public health crisis. We'll talk about that and more right after this. You are the one who can help end hunger. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to meet the need, but the cost of food remains high, and many of your neighbors are struggling to afford groceries. Children are at greatest risk, with one in four facing hunger. Your neighbors are counting on you. Families, seniors on fixed incomes, veterans, you are the one who can help them. Give what you can. The Greater Chicago Food Depository, chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Just a month after it was approved, Chicago's new paid leave policy is set to be amended by the city council, including delaying implementation of the measure by six months. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that the city council approved a sweeping measure last month requiring all employers provide at least 10 days of paid leave to all workers. But when it passed, the lead sponsor of the ordinance, alderperson Michael Rodriguez of the 22nd Ward, pledged to work with alderperson Jason Irvin of the 28th Ward to address concerns on a provision affecting when workers could sue their employer if they were denied the required benefits. Lawrence reported that over the last month, those discussions expanded into broader changes that will delay implementation of the policy until July 1st of 2024, impose a 16-day cooling-off period before a worker could sue an employer for violating the ordinance, and narrow the definition of who would be covered under the policy to accommodate the trade show industry. Lawrence noted that it's rare that the city council would make changes to an ordinance so soon after it was approved, but the amendments reflect the concerns expressed by moderate members of the council and the Black Caucus's efforts to not severely impact small businesses in their wards. The city council's Workforce Development Committee approved the amendments on Thursday, setting up a final vote in the full city council in the week ahead. Despite further concessions, the broader business community that negotiated the ordinance for months remains opposed to the policy. Lawrence noted that the committee was originally only set to consider an amendment to allow employers what's known as a cure period to address issues when a worker says they were denied the benefits provided under the policy. Also noting that the six-month delay will help ensure businesses have a longer lead time to understand and comply with the new provisions in the ordinance before potentially running afoul of the rules. Also, shifting the definition of who is a covered worker, requiring they work 80 hours over a 120-day period inside city limits rather than the previous definition of two hours over a two-week period, makes it less likely traveling workers in the trade show industry would be included. And Lawrence reported that that change was pushed by the Johnson administration, according to sources familiar with the discussions, because of concerns from McCormick Place and Choose Chicago that the ordinance would impact the city's convention industry. 
Lawrence further noted in reporting that a business coalition, including the Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce and associations representing restaurants, hotels, hospitals, and retail merchants, said in a written statement they, quote, appreciate the amendments but remain opposed to the paid leave policy, saying it, quote, fails to adequately protect employers from the compounding effect these policies have on businesses that are already struggling to make ends meet, they said. Find more reporting on the topic at chicagobusiness.com. A report Tuesday that the Chicago Bears are exploring the idea of building a new stadium on a parking lot south of Soldier Field has prompted a firm no from the powerful Parks Preservation Group, Friends of the Parks. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that Juanita Irizarry, the executive director of Friends of the Parks, in responding to questions about a report from 670 The Score that the Bears were completing what was described as due diligence on the prospect of developing a new stadium on the 1,500-space parking lot south of Soldier Field, said, quote, Our board is calling our lawyers as we speak. Ecker reported that the site is said to be one of the many that Chicago Bears CEO Kevin Warren is exploring as the NFL franchise weighs the prospect of leaving Soldier Field and building a new stadium elsewhere in the Chicago area. But the Soldier Field South lot is definitely not a good option, according to Irizarry, who added that nobody from the Bears or the city of Chicago has reached out to her about the idea. In an interview with Cranes, she said, quote, The threat to the lakefront is always there, and we will always be there to protect it. She continued, quote, If I were in charge of the Bears, I would most certainly consider the expectation of a lawsuit from Friends of the Parks as part of the viability of that site. Ecker reported that the report of such a plan got the attention of Friends of the Parks, which famously blocked the development of the $743 million Lucas Museum of Narrative Art on the same site in 2016. In that case, the group sued the Chicago Park District and City of Chicago on the grounds that such a development would not benefit the public and therefore would violate an Illinois public trust doctrine. And a federal judge agreed, declining to throw out the lawsuit and ultimately prompting filmmaker George Lucas to abandon the Chicago plan. Ecker reported that Irizarry acknowledged the coincidental timing of the stadium report surfacing just one day after she announced she would be stepping down as the executive director of Friends of the Parks at the end of the month after an eight-year run. She said a new executive director has yet to be named, but the group's stance on lakefront commercial development, quote, certainly would not change. Bears spokesperson Scott Hagel issued a statement to Cranes in response to the recent stadium report, saying, quote, As we stated in September earlier this year, we want to appropriately explore all opportunities across Chicagoland for the development of a world-class stadium. Ecker noted in reporting that the Bears have pushed for state legislation that would subsidize their plan to build a $5 billion stadium-anchored campus on the former Arlington International Racecourse property in Arlington Heights. But amid a struggle to gain support for that plan, Warren has had discussions with officials in other suburbs, including Naperville, about the prospect of building a new stadium there. Ecker also noted that Warren has also had talks with Mayor Brandon Johnson about alternative sites within the city or the potential to continue playing at Soldier Field beyond the team's 2033 lease expiration. Crane's John Pletz reported that Method Electronics warned that lower-than-expected demand for electric vehicles cut into its sales forecast for the coming year. It joined the growing chorus of manufacturers who are signaling that EV demand might not be as strong as they had thought and that the weakness is spreading to delivery vehicles. Pletz reported that the Chicago-based company provides center consoles, LED lighting, and sensors to the auto industry. CEO Donald Duda told analysts, quote, Our particular concern is the EV market. Our outlook for EV remains very positive long term, but in the near term, it is tempered by program delays. 
He continued, quote, however, we have no doubt that this market will fuel our growth over the next three years. As such, we have reduced our guidance for fiscal 2025, mainly due to the EV market trends. Pletz reported that Method missed financial estimates for the most recent quarter, and the company whose fiscal year ends in April trimmed its revenue guidance for the coming year by $100 million to a range of $1.15 billion to $1.25 billion. It also reduced its operating income forecast to about 7% of sales from 10%. Pletz reported that Chicago-based Method missed financial estimates for the most recent quarter. Duda said to analysts, quote, is the EV market collapsing or is there a major problem? No. He continued, I don't know if I want to use the word or phrase over-exuberance, but there's probably some of that in the forecasting by the market. He continued, but I fully believe that fiscal 25 will be a good year for us and 26 a better year. But we're going to see some fluctuations in forecast until the industry really sorts out what's really the adoption level. Pletz noted that Method gets about two-thirds of its revenue from the automotive market and one-third from industrial customers. It also makes sensors for e-bikes. About 20% of its auto sales come from hybrids and EVs. Pletz further reported that in a separate securities filing, Method also disclosed that it fired Chief Operating Officer Joseph Curry on Tuesday. The company said in July it had placed Corey on leave but has not disclosed the issues surrounding the situation. Method said his duties had been absorbed by others and it has eliminated the COO job. In September, the company also announced that Duda, who had been CEO since 2004, will be retiring. Capital News Illinois reported that a new state health report pinpoints racism as a public health crisis while also noting Illinois needs to improve in the areas of maternal and infant health, mental health, and substance abuse disorders. The broad goals are laid out in a draft of the State Health Improvement Plan, or SHIP, which will be finalized and presented to the Illinois General Assembly next year. The SHIP is part of Healthy Illinois 2028, a five-year plan outlining the major public health crises the state hopes to address. Capital News Illinois reported that after two years of assessment and planning, Healthy Illinois 2028 prioritized five major public health issues. Racism as a public health crisis, maternal and infant health, mental health and substance use disorders, chronic disease, and COVID-19 and other emerging diseases. The report found these issues consistently overlap and are all exacerbated by a lack of access to health care and wraparound services, the infrastructure of public health systems, and racial inequities. Capital News also noted that several members of the public registered concern at recent virtual hearings about what was missing from the draft plan, including care plans for people seeking asylum and concrete actions to slow a rising number of overdose deaths in Illinois. Capital News further noted that public health advocates asked for the inclusion of data-driven responses. Previous ships have included measurable goals, including reducing rates of suicide and opioid overdose deaths, both of which have increased over the last decade, according to the Center for Disease Control's National Center for Health Statistics. Capital News Illinois said that Jennifer Epstein, deputy director of the Illinois Department of Public Health Office of Policy, Planning and Statistics, emphasized that the report is still in draft form and that specific metrics will be added to the plan during 2024. But as Capital News also pointed out, the draft improvement plan for the first time makes a point of listing racism as an overarching public health crisis in Illinois. 
IPHI was one of the entities that contributed to the draft under the guidance of the Illinois Department of Public Health and the State Board of Health. The report was also co-authored by staff from the University of Illinois Chicago's Policy, Practice, and Prevention Research Center. A senior program manager at the Illinois Public Health Institute said continuing stigma and discrimination from health care providers are among the barriers to equitable health care. IPHI Director Lori Call said public health infrastructure needs serious strengthening to be ready for emerging threats, as evidenced by the COVID-19 pandemic. She also said that climate change and its health effects caused by air, water and land pollution are included in those emerging threats. Call also said that eight local entities in Illinois, such as the Chicago Department of Public Health, the Peoria City and County Health Department, and a Champaign school board have already issued a formal declaration of racism as a public health crisis. According to the American Public Health Association, 19 other states have also declared racism a public health crisis, including Michigan and Wisconsin. Find more detailed reporting about this draft report from Capital News Illinois at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts.